This morning we're continuing the series Never Forsaken, which is um, just really a continuation of our previous series, um, which was further up and further in, and never forsaken. Further up and further in, the theme of that was God is with you, and we looked at scriptures that that say that over and over again. God is with you, and pictures of that. And never forsaken. This series is a little bit where the rubber meets the road. It's one thing to have that knowledge in your head. It's another thing to be in the belly of a fish and believe that. It's another thing to be shipwrecked and believe that. It's another thing to be in prison and believe that. So I'm hoping to kind of put us each in between a rock and a hard place through this series in the best way, where we're forced to struggle with the reality and the truth of God's word that God promises that he will never leave us nor forsake us, but also the reality that we live in a broken and painful world, and so often it feels as though he has. And so when you're in the midst of feeling as though God has abandoned you, whether you're abandoned by health or you're abandoned financially or you're abandoned by the ones you thought loved you the most, whatever it is, the God's word stands, he will never leave you nor forsake you. And we started the series last week looking at Adam and Eve. And if you were here, I'm sure you remember the vivid illustration that we had available because of the plants over there and I jumped inside. Which reminds me, if you still want these, we're giving them away, so grab one if you'd like to uh, take one home. But this is, this is the, um, basically a quick review of where we were. And if you, if you weren't here last Sunday, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it because it was a big teaching, way more than I can cover and review this morning. But um, Adam and Eve, when they sinned, it says that they were naked and ashamed. And with sin... There are two consequences, one of which we understand a little bit more than the other, at least in uh, the typical conservative church world. Legally, when we sin, we are guilty before God, and guilt condemns us. And what condemnation is, condemnation is relational separation from God. So when we are relationally separated from God, when we're condemned, it results in death, for the wages of sin is death. The emotional side of, shame, uh, of sin, however, is shame. So when you are guilty, you don't actually feel guilty. What you actually feel is shame. Adam and Eve sinned. They were naked and ashamed. That, that was the, the experiential outcome of sin. And shame is experienced most vividly through nakedness. We're the only animals. We're the only creatures. Well, we're not don't hear me say that in an evolutionary whatever way. We're, we're the only living creatures that can be naked. There's no other animal that can be naked. Only humans. That's interesting. Having been made in the image of God. So our nakedness and shame results in hiding. What did Adam and Eve do as soon as they heard God approaching? They hid. They jumped into the forest and hid themselves behind the trees, and then they, it says they sewed for themselves fig leaves and loincloths to, to cover their nakedness. So they're covering themselves with leaves. I don't know if you've ever tried to do that. It's not very effective. Whenever we attempt to cover our own nakedness, our own shame, that is self-righteousness. That is the biblical definition of what it means to be self-righteous. So what I posited last week was that the person who struggles with religion in the sense of of being a Pharisee 
that's our typical understanding of what a self-righteous person is. Equally self-righteous is the person who tries to cover their shame with alcohol. They're both self-righteousness. And everything in between that. So if you attempt to cover your nakedness before God by chasing after women or by running after human relationships to fill that emotional shame void in your life, that's self-righteousness. Any attempt to cover yourself is self-righteousness. So Isaiah says, our righteousness is as rags to God. And, and the literal translation there is our righteousness before God is as a polluted garment, a filthy, bloody garment. That is what our righteousness looks like to God. So, when we sin, we are guilty legally before God, and emotionally, our lives are filled with shame. That's a problem. So what God does, the remedial requirements, fancy way of saying how God takes care of the problem, legally, we need forgiveness. So guilt requires forgiveness. And forgiveness requires blood. Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, there is no forgiveness of sins. John the Baptist looks at Jesus and says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now this is the side of the problem that each of us who have a relationship with Christ have, have dealt with. Because you have to. When you come to Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have to deal with the legal reality that you have transgressed God's law. You have transgressed his his, um, commandments. You have missed the mark. You have sinned, and you are deserving of guilt. You are deserving of condemnation and separation from a righteous and holy God. And so legally, we are guilty before God. And how he cares for that, how he takes care of that problem is not by us working it out, right? We don't earn justification before God. We don't earn our salvation. How do we stand legally righteous before God? He forgives us through Christ. So by the blood of Christ, our sins are forgiven. And God, when he looks at you, if you've experienced the forgiveness of Christ, God no longer looks at you and says, you're guilty. He looks at you and says, you're forgiven. Now, if we only deal with that side of the problem, then we will continue to feel shame even though we know we're forgiven. I want you to ask yourself, I won't ask you to raise your hands, but I want you to ask yourself for a moment, have you ever struggled with shame even knowing up here that you are forgiven? All of us have had that struggle. And often it's because we haven't learned how to receive God's covering for the emotional side of the result of sin. When we sin, we're not only guilty, we're naked and ashamed. And shame requires righteousness. Any attempt to clothe one's own shame is an act of self-righteousness. Righteousness comes from being clothed by God in the righteousness of Christ. So Adam and Eve, they sin, they're naked and ashamed, they're hiding, they make for themselves fig leaves, that's self-righteousness, because those things are going to dry up, wither, and blow away, and they're going to be right back where they started. 
And so the very first sacrifice that we know of in Scripture takes place. And God kills some animal. We don't know what it was. Maybe a lamb. Kills a lamb. And he clothes Adam and Eve with the covering of that lamb. Jesus, the firstborn son of God, the lamb of God, was also naked in a very different way because he never sinned. And so there was no shame in Jesus's life. There was no emotional nakedness. There was no need for God to make things right in Jesus's life. And yet he gave himself stripped and naked on the cross, exposed to all the world. And he clothes everyone who comes to him for legal forgiveness is not only legally, from a legal standpoint, forgiven, but he actually covers us in his righteousness. And so our nakedness is covered by the clothing of the Lamb of God. Revelation 19 says, it's the marriage between the groom, Jesus, and his bride. And it says, it was granted to the bride of Christ to clothe herself in a garment of radiant white. And then it clarifies what that is. The garment was, is the righteous deeds of the saints. Now think about righteousness clothing us. Now can you in your own power clothe yourselves in righteousness? Of course not. It was granted to you through the Lamb of God to be clothed in righteousness as you live your life. Which means when God says, I forgive you legally, he also says, I want you to feel like it. If I were to forgive my son and truly forgive him, I wouldn't say to him, I forgive you, but I want you to feel terrible the rest of this day. Is that forgiveness? How many of us approach God in that way? I know I'm forgiven, but I'm going to do some penance because I'm going to feel really bad about, about my fallenness before you. And I'm going to make myself, I, I, I have been here. I have torn myself to shreds in front of God before. I mean, just brutally going after myself, telling God how much I hate myself and how unworthy I am of his love and how much I can't stand that I still struggle with this. Man, I have been in that dark place where I have wanted to murder myself, just going after how much I loathe that darkness within me. But the more I understand God as my father, the more I understand his love, the more I realize that is not what he's looking for in me. What he desires is to not only forgive me, but to live like it and feel it. So when Adam and Eve, and the the picture I gave, when they're hiding in the bushes and they know God is coming, you can just picture that they're expecting God's hand to be raised with a knife. His hand to be raised for a beating. The belt's out and he's going to make them pay. He's going to put them on the cross for what they've done. And they're like looking. And they know they have to step out. Because it's so, that this is what the enemy always wants to tempt us. He always wants to tempt you that if you step out and you expose your nakedness to others and to God, he will expose you and he will humiliate you in front of other people. That is what God wants to do. He wants to humiliate you for your shame and your nakedness. And you can just feel that fear in Adam and Eve. 
And when they step out, instead of the hand raised in anger, it's the embrace of the father in the story of the prodigal son covering his child with his garment. That's what righteousness is. When you step out of your guilt and your shame and your nakedness, instead of the raised hand of wrath, which we deserve in Christ, he clothes you in the garment that comes from his son. And when you stand before him, you are not naked. You are righteous because he has clothed you in Jesus Christ. You cannot earn that. Righteousness is not earned. Righteousness is not by you memorizing a bunch of verses or living a perfect life. Righteousness is because Jesus has wrapped himself around you and has indwelled you. And when the father looks at you, he sees his son, Jesus Christ. I heard one. Maybe we should say it together. Let's say amen. So I want to continue to invite you to wrestle with this. Because my guess is more of us have done business with God on the legal side than we have on the emotional side. But God desires both as our loving and perfect father. I lost my my present here. Oh, there we go. Okay. Through the blood of Christ, your guilt has been forgiven. There is no relational separation between you and God. Your body will die, but you will be raised, resurrected to new life. Through the righteousness of Christ, your nakedness has been covered with the righteous clothing of Christ. You stand robed in the glory of God's Son. Praise God. All right, that's review. Jonah. Wow, this is a fun story. I'm going to try to cover the full book of Jonah this morning. Which, if you open your Bible, it's probably just two pages. It's not that long. It's, it's four chapters, and, and a couple of them are really short. But I'm going to try to cover it, and so I'm going to start moving. So will you move with me? All right, let's run together. All right, Never Forsaken in the Sea with Jonah. Before we get into it, I'm going to get... You ever read the last chapter of a book before you, you read the f- first? Any of you ever done that? Where you skip to the last chapter and read it? So, so I don't usually do that, but I've learned in my academic career... Like, the further I go in school, you actually have to do that when you're studying. Like, the harder a book becomes, the more you need to actually look at where you're going. And then that will help you find out how to get there. So we're going to do that with Jonah. Uh, I'm assuming most of us, if not all of us, have heard the story of Jonah or at least know something about it. But we're actually going to start at the end. And then we're going to go back to the beginning because the end clarifies the whole thing. And it's much more helpful to know where we're headed in this story. So... The way we're going to get to the end starts in Exodus, which is actually way before. Makes sense. Exodus 33, Moses and God are having a conversation. And the Lord said to Moses, The very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all of my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. So Moses is talking to God, and he says, I want to see all of your glory. And then God goes on to say, I'll show you my glory, but not my face, because you can't live if you see my face. Anyone who sees my face dies. And then Moses goes up the mountain in chapter 34, skipping to verse 5, and it says, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, 
keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Moses says, show me your glory. The Lord says, okay, I'll show you my glory and I'll declare my name. And the picture there, if you, if you look at it, it, God puts Moses behind a rock and then God covers Moses like with his hand and then God passes by him like that. And it's all that Moses can handle with all of that protection and all of that covering. And of all the things God could have revealed about himself and could have said about himself, what does God make most important in his declaration of his glory? The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And this becomes a theme throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And particularly in the Psalms where they quote this. All right, now we're going to skip ahead to the end of Jonah. Basic details of the story, how we get here. God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh, the enemy of the Israelites. Jonah runs the opposite direction. God sends a storm at sea. The sailors throw Jonah into the sea. Jonah is swallowed by a big fish and taken back and vomited, is the exact word, vomited onto the land again from this fish. And then God says a second time, go to Nineveh. And so Jonah goes and he gives the prophetic message. In 40 days, you're all going to die and the city's going to burn. And that's Jonah's great prophetic message. And the people repent. And it says the king repents, and then Jonah goes to a nearby hillside to sit down because he's angry and he wants to see if the Lord will actually destroy them or not. Fun story. Chapter 4, verse 1. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, Is not this what I said to you when I was yet in my own country? The first time we had this conversation about me coming here to Nineveh, I told you this would happen. That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah ran from Nineveh because he knew that God was gracious and merciful. Think about that for a second. The motivation behind Jonah fleeing as hard as he could from God's mission was because God is love. This gives some interesting context to the beginning of the story. Jonah says to God, this is what I told you back when this whole thing started would happen. You're going to forgive them. If I give a prophetic message to these people I hate, you're going to forgive them. So I'm not going to give them that message. Jonah shows up one other time in scripture. And we know very little about him. But he shows up in 2 Kings chapter 14. At least it's the same name. The prophet... um, It's the same title, uh, Jonah, the son of Amittai. And Jonah, if this is the same Jonah, and most scholars believe that it is, if it's the same Jonah, then what we know about Jonah is that he 
was in prophetic ministry during one of the most evil king of Israel's reign. So if you know your, your Israelite history, your biblical history, you know that the kingdom was split in two. Um, and there was the southern tribes, Judah, and, and the northern tribes that were called Israel. And in the northern tribes, there was not a single king in their history who lived righteously before God. Not one. Not one. In Judah, there were a couple. It was a mixed bag. There were some who gave their whole heart to God. There were some who were very evil and some that were kind of here and there and a little bit of everywhere. Jonah was a prophet in the northern part where there was not a single righteous king in the, in the entire history up until the exile. And he lived during one of the most wicked and evil kings. And in 2 Kings 14, it says, In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. It's a long reign. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He, now listen to this. He restored the border of Israel. So, so even though this king, Jeroboam II, was evil, he actually pushed the boundaries of Israel back to what they had been in their glory days. According... He did this according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. Now think about this. All that we know about Jonah outside of the book of Jonah is that he lived in this time of this evil king and he prophesied that the boundaries of this evil king would expand. Now there were other prophets and we have record of them who served during the same time. And all of them, to a person, had very, very negative things to say about Jeroboam, about his reign, and had prophecies uh, according to the word of the Lord about how God would bring his reign to an end. So there might be a little bit of a nationalistic streak to Jonah, right? To this evil king, he prophesied the expansion of boundaries, and that's all we know about his prophetic ministry other than the book of Jonah. He's willing to prophesy good things to this evil king as it pertains to the Israelite people. And yet, God is the same God of the Gentiles as he is of the Jews. And Jonah knows that he's merciful and gracious. And just like he's merciful and gracious to the Israelite people who don't deserve it, he'll be merciful and gracious to the Ninevites who don't deserve it as well. All right, Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee, for, flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So that's southwest, Nineveh is northeast. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners who were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Who else sleeps through the storm on the boat? There's actually some really interesting parallels between Christ and Jonah. He's sound asleep in the midst of the storm. 
Jesus comes up when they wake him up and he says, why are you afraid? That, which is an interesting question when you're about to die. But in the midst of the storm, he looks at his disciples and says, why, do you, why are you afraid? God's in control. And he speaks to the waves and winds and it calms. They wake up Jonah, verse 6, so the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Or a better translation in modern day English would be, what is wrong with you? Arise, call out to your God, perhaps the God, notice lowercase g, lower, uh, the God will give a, a thought to us that we may not perish. Now, these, um, these Phoenician sailors would have uh, worshipped a pantheon of gods. The, their main god was the god Baal. You remember Baal from other Old Testament stories? And Baal was considered a god of the sky. Okay? So when, when Elijah has his battle with the prophets of Baal, it, God shows that he is the greater god of the sky and rains down fire where Baal can't do it. All right, so they would have worshipped Baal. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. They said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? Good lawyers. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. In other words, the God that I worship is not a territorial God like the gods you worship. He is the God of heaven, but he's also the God of the sea, and he's also the God of land. That just about covers where people can go. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Now, Jonah just said that God is the God of heaven, God of earth, and God of the sea. And he also told him that he's running away from God. Now, Jonah's not, he's not unintelligent. He knows that you can't run from God's presence. Jonah knows that. What, he, what he's saying is putting it into words that they'll understand. But what he's saying is, I'm running away as far as I can from the people that God's called me to. <laughs> Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Fun word. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to try to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked Jonah up and they hurled him into the sea. And the sea... And the the connotation here is immediately, the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Most scholars believe that Jonah probably had never been on the Mediterranean Sea before, and it is like 99.9% sure that he could not swim. And so when he was thrown into the sea, his immediate thought is, it's done. My life is over and I'm getting what I deserve for running from God's mission. God takes this prophet and throws him into the sea and by all that we can imagine, he would have been like, it's done. 
Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. It's also interesting, he might not have known where he was. Because listen to the words of this. Because if you're drowning, I don't know if you've drowned before, but if you're drowning, you're not very aware of where you are or what's happening. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me, out of the belly of Sheol. The Hebrews, the the Jewish people didn't have heaven and hell like it was developed in the New Testament. They believed that good and bad, righteous and unrighteous, all went to the same place, Sheol, the place of the dead. And David prays, don't let me go down to Sheol, for who can praise you from that place? Nobody can praise you from that place. It was only later that our Christian understanding of what those two places are was developed later. So he's saying, I was in the place of the dead. I cried out, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters, listen to this imagery, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountain, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Some time likely passed, okay? We don't, we don't know exactly what, but the, the idea here is probably that it's not the next day. There's probably some time that passes, and you can almost imagine Jonah being like, I guess that's it. I got out of that alive. How did that happen? Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, also, just as note, God could have used anyone. He didn't need Jonah, right? He didn't need Jonah. So why does he keep choosing to use Jonah in this situation? It's worth asking. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out. This is his entire prophetic message. So eloquent. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's all he says that we know of. And that translation is a little sketchy. We're not sure if it was 40 days or three days. It's one of the two. It makes, actually, it makes a little more sense if it was three days. But the traditional translation is 40 days. And Nineveh shall be overthrown. I always think it's funny that John the Baptist is called the greatest prophet. And his entire prophetic message was, was um, uh, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight the paths. Repent. Like, that's basically all he said. That was, I mean, there was some other stuff in there, but the heart of what he said was repent for the kingdom of, hand, uh, of heaven is at hand. And he is, that's the greatest prophetic cry that had happened up until the time of Christ. So Jonah just says repent, um, or no, he doesn't even invite them into repentance. He just says in 40 days, Nineveh is going to be destroyed. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast 
and put on a sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now, who ordered this fast? Did this come from the king? Where did this come from? For all we know, Jonah never even talked to the king. He never even talked to the leaders. He just went to the marketplace and started shouting, this place is going to be destroyed in 40 days. The word reached the king of Nineveh. So through the people, it reaches the king of Nineveh, verse 6. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in in his hands, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So the word reaches the king and then the king makes the fast and the repentance official. But it's already happened on a, on a grassroots level. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented. He relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. Chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Now notice in that question, it's easy to read that as if the Lord himself is angry, but that's not the language that's there. He's asking, like a child who's throwing a temper tantrum, It's like a father who's asking a child who's throwing a temper tantrum, is what you're doing solving the problem? Is what is happening now resulting in what you want? God's not angry with Jonah here. He's having, he's showing that steadfastness, loving kindness as a father. Do you do well to be angry? And he actually invites Jonah to have a conversation with him. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly, just like he was exceedingly angry, now he's exceedingly glad because of a plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, 
that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. The end of the book. Quite the cliffhanger. It reminds me of another story where we don't really know what happens because you're left with the question, right? Does Jonah's heart shift or does it stay the same? Does he remain angry at God for his loving kindness towards these people? Now, Nineveh in a few generations actually destroyed Israel and brought them into exile. So on a, on a flesh level, Jonah had a lot of right to be angry at these people because they were about to destroy his own homeland. And yet, God still was pouring out his loving kindness. And so he's just stuck in this tension and we don't know what happens next. Which should remind us of another story that I alluded to earlier in the service. Who else do we not know how he responded out of his stubbornness when God showed his gracious loving kindness? The older son. It's the same ending. Isn't that interesting? The younger son who deserved no mercy... No pity, had squandered everything, was the enemy of the house of God. The house of the Father goes off and squanders everything, living with prostitutes and in pigsties. The most unclean of the unclean. And when he comes home, the Father comes running out, celebrating, and wraps his nakedness in his cloak of righteousness, forgives his guilt, and stands him up righteous in his home again, restoring him to his sonship. The older son the picture of Jonah, the picture of the the religious people of Israel, stood outside, and when he didn't enter in, the father went out to get him too, because the father cares about him too. And the father invited him into the party, but he said, I've spent my entire life slaving away for you, and I've never gotten so much as a goat. And that son of yours, who squandered all of the life and everything you've given him, You welcome him and throw a big party for him and invite the whole neighborhood. And then the the father says, is it not right that I restore my son? He was lost, but now he's found. And it ends. And we don't know. How does the older son then act? And I think here's the point for today. There's lots of different things we can learn from these stories. But for today, I think what the Lord has for us is because it's, we are the older son, we are Jonah, and it's up for us to decide how we're going to respond. You are the older son, you are Jonah, and God has left it up to you to choose what you will do next. Because I guarantee you, he's called you to places you'd rather not walk. And I guarantee you that you've struggled with jealousy in your heart towards his, with his loving kindness being poured out on other people who, according to everything you can see, don't deserve it. I certainly have. I grew up in the, on the mission field in the Philippines, and one of the things I began to struggle with, having grown up as a missionary kid, believe it or not, uh, was self-righteousness. And I thought that people in America were so selfish and so silly and weren't worth the time of day. And I, the last place in the world I wanted to be was America. I would rather be anywhere else in the world except for here. And then I was 16, and my family moved back to the States, and it was the loneliest, hardest time of my life, and I went to a public school who had more teachers than my previous school had kids, 
And it was this massive school, and I remember not having a single friend, and I sat down at this table that I was invited to sit at, and they were talking about drugs and sex and everything that teenagers talk about, and I remember just looking around, hating them with everything in me, hating every last one of them for their sin for their wickedness, and because they didn't see the world like I did, they didn't know what poverty was, they didn't know what mission was. Oh my goodness, so self-righteous. It was so, such a breaking time in my life. And I just couldn't make a friend to save my life. And I'm a relational guy. I've never struggled making friends, and I could not for the life of me make a friend during that time. I mean, self-righteousness makes for poor company. And God, through a series of people, most, mostly through my wife, or most vividly through my wife, but through a series of friends and other people in my life, just broke me in that time. It broke me. And my parents gave me the option. After that first day of school, I came back and I cried like a baby. said how much I wished we weren't there and wasn't walking this lifestyle out and didn't want to be there. And my parents gave me the option to either be homeschooled or go to a Christian school but they wanted me to stick it out for three weeks at, at the public school. It's like, come on. Three weeks of this is going to be the worst three weeks of my life. And so I went to school each day for those three weeks. And n- every day was as bad as the first day. But God got a hold of me during that three weeks in a way that was, I, I had a relationship with him before that, but it was new. He got a hold of my heart in a way, in my brokenness and loneliness, and essentially what I heard him say more, more or less was, you better stick this out or you're going to regret it. And so at the end of the three weeks, my parents gave me the option again. I could go to a Christian school. I could be homeschooled. And thanks be to God. This is for me. Now, I'm not, this isn't prescriptive. This is descriptive of my story. Thanks be to God. For whatever reason, I decided to stick it out at that school. And I finished high school there, and it was rough, and it was brutal. But I learned how to love people that were worth loving because they're God's children. They're God's kids. And it doesn't matter that they were wasting their days away playing Xbox and smoking pot. God is the same merciful and gracious God to that spoiled person as he is to the poorest of the poor in the Philippines. He's the same God. And he desires that none should perish. So we are left today with that same question. What will you choose? Will you choose to go in and party with the younger son and your father? Because if you don't, you'll miss the party, but you'll also miss your father. Because guess where he is? He's in the party. Throwing it. Will you run from Nineveh and be swallowed up? (laughs) You might be successful to a certain extent. Or will you sit with God on that hillside and marvel at what he's done? Because he bought them for a price. And he's given you the opportunity to walk with him. Praise team, will you come back up? Can you put up the words to the bridge? You chase me down. You seek me out. With the, these guys picked the songs. I didn't, I didn't have anything to do with picking the songs. I'm so glad God worked this way. I'm so glad we're ending with this song. And I asked them to start the service with it. So maybe you walked in and they were playing this song. Um, but the bridge, and I'm going to get it wrong unless I 
unless I see the, the lyrics, but it's, um, it's essentially, there you go, you chase me down, you seek me out, how could I be lost when you have called me found? You chase me down, you seek me out, how could I be lost? And then you can advance it. When you have called me found, like a tidal wave crashing over me, rushing in to meet me here, your love is fierce. It's like a hurricane that I can't escape tearing through the atmosphere. Your love is fierce. I love that imagery because the, the Psalms are so filled with God. It says, part the heavens, part the heavens and come down. And the literal translation is, rip the heavens apart and come down. Come down and meet us here, God. So would you stand and let's sing and let the word of the Lord sink in and let's worship him uh, singing this together.